Matthew wanted to emphasize Jesus is the king. Now that might not hit us with much impact really because we're so used to hearing it. We're so used to the idea of Jesus as the king. It's something which if we don't accept, we at least hear of it and have heard of it probably very often down through the years. And now just stop and think uh, and place yourself, if you would, in the in, uh, first century Europe and, uh, and Asia, where the Roman Empire was uh, pervasive, it was, it was sucking up countries uh, to sit under its d- uh, dominion, and uh, Caesar was the ultimate. And the Christian faith bursts onto the scene and makes the claim, Jesus is the king, not Caesar. He's the one who is the ultimate authority, the ultimate power. He is the one, Matthew says, who has come to establish a kingdom. What is a kingdom? A sovereign state with a monarch as its head. (laughs) That's a kingdom. A particular, specific, identifiable monarch. Somebody who we can look at and say that person is the ultimate authority in this kingdom. United Kingdom we live in. uh, Because the queen, uh, at least in principle, is the head of the country. Uh, And yet, what the Christian faith was saying in first century Europe and Asia was that Jesus is the king above Caesar. Uh, And he is the king of a kingdom which is timeless and eternal. Therefore, that kingdom has something to say to us today, doesn't it? It's, It's of relevance to us today. It's not just a kingdom which is interesting from history. If it's a timeless kingdom of heaven, it's a kingdom which has significance for us today. Now, one of the challenges in the early a uh, few centuries of the Christian faith was the idea, if Jesus came to establish a kingdom, uh, why don't we see it now, here on earth, supreme, ultimate authority? Why isn't that king seen as the king with ultimate power? That, ha- that was one of the challenges in the first few centuries. I think in a a real sense the same challenge exists for us today but subtly different. Uh, We would uh, face a question again and again, why is it uh, that Jesus seems completely either unconcerned or irrelevant or outside of any kind of impact in this world? Is he going to return? These kingdom parables keep us telling us again and again that he's going to return. But quite frankly, it doesn't look like he's king right now, does it? Uh, Secondly, we have to ask ourselves, what about the things that go on in this world? Why is it that a king who is the ultimate monarch, who is the ultimate authority, is not recognized as such? One of the things that we saw last week is that the kingdom of heaven is now and in the future. It's present and to come. 
How do you get that? How can the one thing, which is the kingdom, be both? How can it be now and yet to come? How can it be inside and outside? How can one thing be all of those different things? Well, what we saw in the parable last week is that there is a step change in the kingdom of heaven. There is a point at which what is true now becomes visible for everybody. Uh, And the point where that becomes visible for everybody is the point where King Jesus returns. The ultimate Jesus Christ enthroned on the, uh, the ultimate throne of heaven becomes visible to everybody when he returns. That is the step change that takes place. In other words, what Matthew is trying to encourage us to see is the kingdom exists now, but it becomes clearly visible when Jesus returns. We saw last week that we can be sure that he's going to return because he died and rose again. He lives. Uh, Other people have come back to life. Other people who God has raised from the dead. Lazarus is an example. Uh, John chapter 11, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Yet Lazarus dies again. Jesus is the only figure in the whole of the history of this world, the only human being who has died and, and risen back to life and not died again. That's the assurance that he lives and we will see him again. That's one of the things that Paul says. That's why we can be sure that the gospel is worth listening to. That's what makes it distinct and that's what makes it worth uh, spreading to other people because Jesus lives. If he didn't rise from the dead, it's a waste of time. What does a kingdom therefore look like? I think a kingdom lives, a kingdom exists, in fact the kingdom of heaven lives in stark contrast to the world that we live in. I I think that is at the heart of this parable. Because this parable, we noticed, didn't we, if we turn uh, to the reading, if we have a look at what it actually says, we see that it opens up. Again, it will be like this follows on straight away from the previous parable, which told about uh, bridesmaids with lamps, five which were prepared and five which were unprepared for the coming of the groom. If the previous one carries the warning, be prepared, this one... This parable, this story, explains what being prepared looks like. (laughs) The first one says, be prepared for the return of the king. This one says, what does it look like? I think the overriding message of being prepared is the impossible condition for a human being of the eradication of selfishness. The eradication of selfishness. Now, we need to explain that a little bit. We need to work through this parable. We live in a pretty selfish world, don't we? We live in a world which, because of its self-centeredness, when I talk about not even corporate self-centeredness, but every body, every individual, primarily living for themselves to a greater or lesser extent, we see the breakdown of relationships in this world. We see pain and we, suffer, we see suffering. I think it was most uh, captured, most poignantly for me in th- this weekend, reading one of the articles. It was, um, it was uh, one of the regular contributors to the Daily Telegraph 
was writing about um, a case uh, that was in um, a coroner's court last week, I think it was, looking at the, uh, the death of a man who was 59. He, he contracted a profound skin condition and slipped into a very painful skin condition. He'd slipped into depression. He'd, found that he'd first come in contact with the authorities when they found him uh, stood on a bridge. It would seem as though he was ready to throw himself off the bridge to end his life. And uh, the traffic was held up on the bridge. And for seven hours, people were negotiating and working with this man. It looked as if progress was being made. But for seven hours, traffic was held up. I guess you can see that people are going to get impatient. That's human nature, isn't it? And uh, the coroner reported that around the point where progress appeared to be made, it started that people started sounding their horns and then there were two shouts went up from one of the, from the lorry drivers who were nearby to uh, the actual incident uh, along the lines of jump you. And you can imagine the following words that went after that. Uh, apparently his tears rolled down his face. Having heard what he'd said, what had been said to him, he duly jumped off the bridge. In the coroner's report, his brother says, he was a kind and caring man who would have been horrified to think that he caused a problem on the bridge. I think that that story, that little cameo, captures the self-centeredness of this world. Because I guess most of us who drive can in some sense relate to seven hours frustration, can't we? You know, it's easy to point the finger and say how outrageous, how scandalous, and yet step back and see that our self-centeredness, I speak on behalf of all of us, maybe I'm just worse than most people, but I can say that I can at least understand some of that frustration. That self-centered, you're disturbing my journey, and yet that extra step where my journey becomes more important than the life of a person becomes more significant than the intervention in a man who is clearly in an incredibly distressed situation. It just shouts the kind of contradictions and the stresses and the problems in this world a world which is, at the end of it, the Bible says, we all do what is right in our own eyes. We do what we want to do. We are driven by our desires. I think that that picture just speaks so powerfully. And yet Matthew comes in and he says that Jesus has established a new kingdom. A kingdom of heaven. And the obvious question then is, well, if that kingdom is so great, why do things like that still happen? 
Why do terrible things like that still go on if the kingdom of heaven has been established by Jesus? If a righteousness, if a goodness has been established? Well, let's have a look at how this uh, particular uh, story works its way out. We see the, the way it unfolds. We see a man who is clearly incredibly rich. Again, it's, uh, Matthew uses a description here uh, which we, we can't really relate to. Uh, he uses uh, a description of talent. Talent was a weight rather than a number. And yet he's talking about uh, a weight of money. Uh, and money in the days of, of Jesus came in, in three uh, commodities, really, rather than denominations, came in three commodities. It was either gold, it was silver, or it was copper. And here we have no idea of the true value. We don't even really know what a talent weighed, but we certainly don't know how much value this was. What we do know is that even if it was a talent of copper, it was still a huge amount of money. It was a, it was a significant wealth that this man had. And what we can see is that he had uh, eight talents that were passed on to three people. We see that uh, he's going on a journey, he calls his servants, and he entrusts his property to them. Uh, five talents are given to one, two talents to another, and one talent to the final one. And we see there, each according to his ability. One of the things that, that Matthew make, or Jesus makes clear, each according to his ability. We have a wise master here. We haven't got one who's, who's reckless. He considers and he knows his servants well and he shares his wealth in accordance with their ability. He knows that one of them is pretty smart, so he gives him five talents. He knows that one of them is perhaps not quite so smart, so he gives him two talents. Uh, and the third one, he's very cautious. He's careful not for his sake. That becomes clear. He's careful for the servant's sake, and then therefore he gives him one talent to look after. But as we say, excuse me, each one of those is a significant amount of money. Uh, and so uh, we find that those three men, the man who received the five talents, went at once, straight away. It's almost as though uh, Jesus wants to enforce the diligence of these men. They go out from that place and it's though straight away he goes out and he gets to work and he puts those five talents to good work uh, and he gains five more. Uh, we, we don't know the time scale. Uh, we see that it's a, a, a significant amount of time and it's very clear in the way the story unfolds. It seems, well, it's seems pretty clear to me that he doesn't just uh, go out uh, and get the five talents and pack it away and sit, sit down. What it means, I think, what Matthew is saying here in, the, in, the, in conveying the story that Jesus told is that the man who had received five talents went at once and started working and finally resulted in doubling those five talents to ten talents. Again, the same for the second one. So also, the one who had two talents gained two more. Uh, let's have a look at what happens with the third man. Uh, the man who had received the one talent went off, uh, dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. 
that wasn't particularly unusual. (laughs) It wasn't particularly, we know it wasn't particularly unusual because of the occasions where archaeological discoveries have have dug up uh, treasure which has quite clearly been hidden, secluded. Before, uh, before the opportunities of safe storage and all the rest of it, uh, we see that it was very common for people to dig a hole, put the money in it, and, and walk away. This man does just that. Then we see after a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. So he comes back. Doesn't that hark back to last week? Doesn't that connect the two stories? One is the bridegroom who's coming for the wedding. And uh, he, he, the, the wedding is assured, the wedding is guaranteed because the wedding has been promised, because the betroth, betrothal has been made. We said last week that that is exactly a picture of how Jesus promises to return again. The betrothal has been made as he dies on a cross. The assurance of the return is made at that point. And, and the, the final return uh, is guaranteed. We see the same here. The man returns and s- makes settlement with his servants. Let's see how that unfolds. Let's see how the, uh, the result, therefore, of the, uh, of the commitment that these men have made. The first one, obviously, the five has made five. The... Uh, the, the result of that is that the master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. And then he uses a phrase uh, which shows the heart of the master. He doesn't say, well done, you've been, uh, you've been successful. I will give you uh, proportionally a wage or, or a, a commission or whatever you like. A bonus, he says, come and share in my happiness. See that? That's what, he, that's what he gives. Exactly the same for the man with the two talents. Now that's significant because it reveals the heart of the master. He doesn't give in proportion to what they've achieved, although they've both doubled up. He gives of himself. Come and share my happiness. Share your master's happiness. The result was not the issue so much for the master. You know, the outcome, the doubling up. We'll see how that works out. We see the master's heart exposed here. He wants to share his happiness with those servants. He wants this to be more He wants to express relationship with them. He wants it to be more than just a payout, if you like. Then we see this final case. We see the final one-talent servant comes along. Master said, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. On the face of it, (laughs) as I was preparing this and we were talking about servants and masters and 
and King's returning and it just coincided with me watching the documentary about the history of, of Blackadder and I couldn't help thinking about Baldrick at this point, you know, uh, with this, this servant. It, he seems a bit of a dumb servant, doesn't he? It, it seems as though, you know, I, I went and buried it, sir, uh, and here it is back. Everything that is yours. But there's something deeper going on. Because initially we could say, well, clearly the master knew that he wasn't quite as switched on because he gave in accordance with their abilities, didn't he? We can really be in danger as we see this story of unfolding, of, of feeling as though actually this one talent servant is fairly hard done to. He's obviously not that particularly astute, uh, and therefore, the end result of him uh, being cast out because he, he, all he did was buried that talent and then gave back the master so he didn't lose anything. Initially, we think one of two things. Either he's badly done to or, or even worse, is the kingdom of heaven all about us being successful for God? Isn't it easy for us to think that? Either he's badly done to because he wasn't smart, he was a Baldrick servant, or, or alternatively, acceptance in the kingdom of heaven is about how successfully we multiply the talents that God has given. If we're successful, God will allow us into his kingdom. That's what it sounds like, doesn't it, on the face of it? I, but I think we need to, in the same way as we see the master's heart exposed, as we see he just shares his happiness with those servants, equally, no matter what uh, they had done, no matter what, what they had achieved, I think in exactly the same way we see the heart of this servant uh, revealed as we see the story unfolds. The master replied, and here's the key point. Here's the, 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 the kind of the, 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 the lever that prizes off the lid and tells us what's really going on. The master replied, you wicked, wicked lazy servant. He doesn't criticize him for not being smart, not being financially astute. He criticizes him for being wicked and lazy. Why? Well, he says... So you, he asks him a question. So you knew that harvest, that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed? He throws it back. He reflects it back and says, so you know I'm like that, do you? That's what you consider me to be? You think I'm somebody who reaps where I haven't sown? You consider me to be the kind of person that takes where I haven't invested? That's what you think of me? Ah. And therefore you were scared? You know what? That doesn't stack up, is what the Master says. That doesn't stack up because you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned I would, I would have received it back with interest. There's the point. There's the crux issue. 
you could have done something. It's not about how successful you are. You know, you've got one talent. If you'd given it to the bankers, I don't know what the state of the interest rates were in first century Palestine. If they're as bad as our interest rates at the moment, uh, he wouldn't have got much. But what the Master is saying is precisely that. If you'd have taken that talent, and if you'd have put it with the bankers, and if you'd have just received a little bit of interest, I'd have turned around to you, and I'd have said, come and enjoy my happiness. But actually, you've just exposed your heart. The reality is this. I gave you a talent to to take care of, to have responsibility for. What did you do with it? You disregarded it. You didn't want anything to do with it. You had no consideration for it. You had therefore no consideration for me. You didn't care. Or to put it in a way which really um, makes it relevant, I hope, for today, the Master is saying to this servant is this, I gave you a responsibility, but you walked out of this room and you lived your life with you at the center and not me at the center. You lived your life for your sake and not my sake. You disregarded the talent that I'd given you. You could have invested it. I'd have accepted uh, 1% and I'd have shared my happiness with you. It's not because I was expecting smart, shrewd dealing. It's because I expected you and I wanted you to show that you loved me. I wanted you to show that you had consideration. I, wanted to gi- I gave you the opportunity to show that you would live that long period of time showing that you cared for me, showing that relationship existed between us. The Master gave those three servants property. He entrusted property to them. There is no indication whatsoever that there was any contract beforehand. And what we see here is a content this is an explanation of what it means to be prepared for the coming of the king. Two of them were prepared, and they were prepared in this way. They cared about their master. Their heart was for their master. They loved their master. They went out and the master had given them five talents and they went out and one of them multiplied it by 100% and came back with another five talents on top. Not because there was payback, but because he cared about the master. He lived his life as though he lived in the presence of the master's treasury. He lived his life as though he lived in in the benefit of the master, the master's wealth. Two of them did that. And yet this one servant lived his life, lived that long period of time with himself at the center. 
Matthew wants us to see Jesus was enforcing at the time to those first hearers as they were trying to grapple with what does it mean to be prepared for the coming king? What does it mean? And Jesus says it's quite simply this. Are you living your life with me at the center or are you living your life with you at the center? Are you living a selfish life? Are you living a Christ-centered life? Uh, selfish, self-centered, me at the center, Christ, Christ at the center, Christ-focused. Which is it? That's the mark of preparation. It says this, doesn't it? Being ready for the coming of the Master, being ready for the coming of the King, isn't about being ready at one point in time where He suddenly appears because that's what it appears in the first parable. They're just ready with their lamps. It's about being ready at that moment in time. And, and Jesus says, no, it's not like that. I can understand why you might have considered that, but, but that, all I was explaining there was that's the kind of step change that takes place. Actually, being prepared is about living it out day to day. Living it out. Never knowing when the Master is going to come again. Uh, and, and living it out with a heart and a love for the Master. That's quite simply it. The end result of that. What happens with this man? As we see the continuation of that previous picture, we see that he is separated. We see that he is cast out. We, show, we see that he, is, uh, he has what is his taken from him uh, and given to others and throw that worthless servant out into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That sounds harsh, doesn't it? Throw him out. Weeping, gnashing of teeth, separation from God until we stop and say, no, that is just a continuation of precisely how the servant has lived. <laughs> Hasn't he? He's lived his life. He's lived though that long period of time. He's lived it separated from the Master. He's lived it apart from Him. He's lived, himself, lived with Himself cut off from the Master. And so the Master says that what happens in this life, effectively, Jesus says, what happens now continues into eternity. It carries on. Being prepared for eternity is about how we live now. now the, the, this, is where it hits, this is where it really hits. Every one of us here, it's as though the Master has entrusted us with talents. We can't say that we haven't been granted anything. And we can't say that because we know that we live in God's world. We know that all of the things that we have received, we receive from God. We know that all of the benefits that we have in this life are, are not ours. And yet how many of us, and I look in the mirror at that point and say I struggle by carrying on living as though this is my world. I carry on living with me at the center. I carry on living as though I am not prepared for the coming king. I carry on living as though I am not giving myself 
with every part of me for the love of the king. This story goes on. Uh, Jesus unfolds this even more uh, by describing in verse uh, 30, 36 through to 46. Uh, let me just read a, a couple of verses to you. It says that the righteous uh, will be granted relationship with him when he returns because they fed the hungry uh, and they've clothed the poor. And there will be those who will be separated because they haven't fed the hungry and they haven't clothed the poor. And they'll we'll say, well, I don't ever remember clothing somebody. I don't ever remember feeding somebody. Uh, and yet I'm granted relationship with you. And others who are cast out will say, I don't ever remember pushing somebody who needed food away. I don't ever remember turning somebody who needed clothing away. And the point of it is this. Jesus is saying, I, I hear what you're saying, but you've lived your life for yourself. You've not lived it for me. You've not lived it as though that resource which has been granted to you it is there for you to just pour out and multiply for benefit for others. That is a really powerful portrayal that Jesus makes, isn't it? What a strong message is brought out at this point. Are we living as though what we have is to be poured out because it's not ours anyway? It's the Master's. Now, now again, that sounds a bit like if we do really good, the Master will give us, doesn't it? If we work really hard, the Master will give us. Reminds me of um, another of the uh, another of the Blackadder characters, the Lord Chamberlain Melchett. He's this kind of sycophantic, horrible, sleazy. Everything that he does, he does because it'll make the Queen happy, and he'll get something out of it. Brilliantly portrayed by Stephen Fry. Uh, this kind of kind of sleazy, horrible, self-centered character who is just completely sycophantic. It just... Does he love the Queen? All of the things that he says, does he really love the Queen? Of course he doesn't love the Queen. He does things for the Queen for what he can get out of it. And how easy it is that we've got to hold those two things... One way we can appear as though we, we live for ourselves. The other way is that we can appear as though we do everything just so that we can get out of it. Is our Christian faith that? Is, is our idea of relationship with the King what I can get out of it? Or have we reached that point where we say, I understand what the King has done for me. I love what the King has done for me. I see that he came and he sacrificed himself and my heart is given to that king. And I'm going to now live my life, not for me, but for the glory of that king. Because I am now in relationship with that king. I am now in, 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 a, in a relationship which cannot be broken because he has forged it. But I'm going to express that relationship in this life now. I... I want you to question. I want you to think about that. What, and I think about that. What are the resources that I have? 
What are the resources that we have? Time, skills, gifts, emotions. All of those kind of things that have been granted to us, not because they're ours, but because God has given them, uh, given them to us on trust. <laughs> they're given on trust. Being prepared, truly being in relationship with that King means that we live our lives now. At the beginning of a venture like this, in the middle of this place, with all of the opportunities and all of the demands that this place uh, places on us for the furtherance of the Gospel, is our heart, I want nothing more than the name of Jesus to be shared with as many people as possible here. I want Him to be exalted. And my resource, whatever that resource is, whatever that talent is, if we want to misuse that word, whatever, I, I just want to pour that out. Because I love that king. Or are we in danger of saying, no, that's mine. And I'm going to dig a hole and I'm going to bury it. And I'm, I'm going to live my life for me. Or are we equally in danger of saying, I'll do all of the things that the king might look at me and think I'm great. And maybe by the end of it, he might even grant me eternal life like some sycophantic servant who doesn't even really love the king. But we want the king for everything that we can get out of him. What Jesus says here is, real, true preparedness for the king is like this. It's like we're living our lives day by day, knowing that we have resource, but knowing that it's not really ours knowing that we can just, we can let it go. Because we look forward to a relationship with the King which is eternal, where we enter into His happiness for all of eternity, where the things that we hold on to with tight fists here seem so, so, like, so insignificant compared to the riches of the future. That's what being prepared is like. Now I know, we need our fingers peeling away from the things that we hold on to, don't we? We don't let go easily. But is our prayer, is our desire, Father, take a hold of each one of those fingers, all of those securities that I think are so important for me in this life, for me to feel as though I'm happy or whatever it might be, just peel my fingers away one by one so that I can show that my heart is truly in relationship with you. And I know that to be so because of what you have done when you came into this world and you died for me. Help me to be reminded day by day that I live my life with the gifts and the provisions and the resources, with a focus that is for you to be elevated, for you to be displayed. I, I guess we sit quite literally at the beginning of a, a real venture, an adventure. But may that adventure not be for our glory. May that adventure not be for our honor. May that adventure not be so that we can turn around to the king one day and say, see what I've done. You've got to pay me back. May that adventure in our hearts right now be because we're looking at the glory of the king and saying, I want you, you to be honored. 
I want you to be known more than anything. I want to multiply the blessings that have been poured out on me so that others might be blessed in the same way. That's being prepared. That is the reversal of selfishness. An eye to Christ, a heart for Christ, turned away from the selfishness of me. We can't, we can't move our focus off ourselves into nothing. It's got to be placed somewhere. That's why no other system, no other idea is going to avoid the tragedies that we looked at in the first place where the selfishness of a broken journey results in somebody jumping off a bridge. None of us can change that much. We can't change. We can't reverse that selfishness until we place it somewhere else that just doesn't suck and suck and suck and take it all away but just pours out His happiness on us. Our closing hymn that I want us to sing now just reflects that. Yes, it's knowing You, Jesus. There is no greater thing. But it speaks of all of the things that we once held dear. All of the things that we looked at for our security. And we say we're thankful that they've been taken away. And may they be taken away in our minds and in our hearts so that we can praise Jesus, King Jesus now, for all that He is for the future. Amen.